I had concerns about going over to uh, Hebron because there was so much killing over there. My grandfather was a Jew, of course. You know, Jews aren't very popular in a place like Palestine. And then I did sit down with my son before I left and I said, look, if I don't expect to die, but if I should be killed, then just know that everything will be all right. In 2018, Jason Hartley, an experienced counterterrorism consultant, travelled to Hebron in the Middle East to further his PhD research and learn more about what impacts trust relations between police and Muslim communities, as well as the underlying attitudes of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Known as the hotbed of terrorism, Hebron is certainly not your average tourist destination. Deciding to go was a process that could only be made through prayer and the comforting assurance of the Lord. As it turned out, Jason's experience in Hebron was much more than just a research trip. And in his conversations with various Israeli and Palestinian citizens, he was able to share gospel truths to break down some of the deeply ingrained cultural perceptions each had about the other. In this episode, Jason shares his experience about following spiritual promptings and finding the true source of peace, even amidst a conflict thousands of years old. My name is Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we talk with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith in contemporary Australia. Well, thank you again for taking the time out to speak with me today. I've obviously been looking forward to this conversation and evidently you've had a very interesting career with a number of special experiences. A lot of those, you know, you've expressed to me already have been influenced by higher heavenly powers. So I can't wait to hear more. I suppose we should just start with a bit of an overview. So where, like, where did your career start? You worked in the police force for a while. Was that your first role? Uh, yep, pretty much so. So, yeah, basically, I guess, um, you know, like a lot of Latter-day Saints served a mission and uh, and then came home and, uh, you know, really enjoyed the thought of helping people. So I went into the police and, and, uh, and then after working with the police for a few years, I worked in some, some fairly busy areas where we were kind of like robots, like just really arresting people. You know, it wasn't preventative, and I really wanted to be a, uh, you know, one of those sort of making a difference in terms of prevention and intervention. So I went off and I, you know, did a uh, a master's degree in criminology and then a PhD in criminology. And so, wow. yeah, so I've, I just find it more satisfying to, you know, focus on the preventative side. You know, when I was a teenager, I really wanted to get into criminology, but somebody told me that I would, I did not have the character for it. Do you find that it really requires a certain caliber of, I don't know, strength and resilience? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you're in lots of situations where things can easily go wrong and you can easily make the wrong decision. And of course, there's a cost when you make the wrong decision. Uh, and so, I mean, a lot of church members that, survive quite well in the police you know and are active in the in in the gospel uh often find places that are more conducive to spirituality they might work in education they might be a manager that's off the street or you know they might be working in a in a support role um but you know it can be very challenging 
working on the coal face of activity, very, very harsh and, and not so conducive to spirituality. Yeah. Did you feel like when you set out to, to do that master's and also just working in the police, was that something that you felt inspired spiritually to do, um, even though it's a darker kind of career field? Um, yeah, look, I, I guess absolutely. I've, I've, I've always tried to pray about what it is I should do. And when I felt promptings to do, say, the master's degree back in 2000, uh, in criminology, it was something that didn't make a great deal of sense to me at the time, but I felt strongly to do it in my prayers, and so I did it. And I guess you know later I could look back and in awesome wonder, so to speak, and and see that you know that Heavenly Father, um, you know, really had a pathway planned if I had the courage to follow. Very cool. So you've been in the Queensland Police Force. Yep. What kind of other roles have you had? Okay, so in the police, basically, I uh, worked in the largely worked in the Asian Specialist Unit, uh, which really was a unit um, that had a charter to go out and um, do specialist work with Asian communities. Like, for instance, the police sponsored me to studying full time. Uh, learning how to speak Vietnamese in Vietnam uh, so that I could come back and I could cultivate informants within the Vietnamese community to find out who had murdered, who who was selling drugs, what was the grim, you know, the criminal activity where escapees were hiding. And so it was very much an opportunity to go out and, and uh, I guess, liaise and generate intelligence and investigate was uh, what I did for some time. I, I also worked in organised crime. I, I worked in the drug squad. Uh, I worked in, in counter-terrorism. Um, in its very early stages, I was I was on the uh, the investigative team that investigated the burning of a mosque in response to 9-11. There was only one mosque destroyed in the world in response to 9-11, and it was here in Brisbane. And, and I was Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, I was appointed state Islamic liaison coordinator overnight uh, mm. after 9-11. Everything exploded. So previous to that, you hadn't had any experience with, with Muslim communities? No, not at all. No, uh, not at all. Uh, so I just yeah. threw you in there? <laughs> yeah, very much so. But, I mean, it was great. I've, I've you know, I've always sort of, I, I don't know, like lots of church members, I guess, you know, you can, when you're, create a quiet space and you just sort of reach for the spirit and the, the spirit stirs and you feel that beautiful energy just sort of just gently pushing you in a particular direction. I, I feel personally I've, I've there's lots of times within my own working life and career that I later stand back and I just count my blessings that I did follow those promptings. So that was obviously talking nearly two decades ago where yep. what have you kind of been doing since, since that, that time. role yeah yeah so since that time I uh, worked for the New Zealand police for a period of time uh, I trained United Nations staff for deployment in Afghanistan Iraq and and the Solomon Islands East Timor and, and Bougainville uh, really uh, training in terms of how to achieve outcomes in culturally diverse environments. And so, yeah, and that, a lot of that I think started, uh, you know, when I, you know, I, I was called 
to serve in a Samoan speaking mission as as a um, you know as a missionary, and I think that's where my love of cultures really started. Yeah, wow. So if we go back a couple of years ago, yeah. now you were working on your PhD in the field of counterterrorism. Is that right? That's right. Yep. So yep. the basis of my PhD was was in counterterrorism, but not so much in terms of the intelligence gathering or the reactive side of of counterterrorism. It was very much around uh, the notion of trust and how that changes between cultures. You know, how do Muslim communities bestow trust? How do they determine whether someone's trustworthy and how we do we work together? And really in terms of leadership, how do we identify leaders with the greatest legitimacy so that, you know, we work with leaders that have the greatest leverage with Muslim communities? Wow, that's very interesting. How long did it take you to, to do, like, say, from start to finish? Uh, well, it was basically probably uh, three and a half years, really. Yeah. Um, from start and it was yeah it was focused mostly on on the muslim relations or were there other cultures you looked at no it was it was mostly focused on the on muslim communities and so all my interviews were with police and members of muslim communities to really understand the nature of the relationship between between the two and it's interesting uh, uh you know when you deal with muslim communities half of the literature says it's really difficult to win their trust the other half says it isn't, but when you understand how and what the differences are, it's actually very easy to win trust. Yeah, and I suppose that brings us to the theme that we wanted to discuss today was yeah. how you yourself experienced and gained trust when you went over there. So you visited Hebron. I assume that was part of your research project for your PhD? Yeah, um, well, yes and no. Um, the university wouldn't allow you to go into a place like Palestine that was just there was just too much risk um, but I felt that it was something that I needed to do uh, because there's a special relationship between notions of justice and trust and so when you look at like uh, some of the hot spots around the world that would include Iraq and Afghanistan and Palestine these are issues that are constantly raised within mosques throughout the world it was it's such a a complex area it's it's highly emotional from a sociological perspective, you know, beliefs govern your emotions largely. And so anything that impacts your beliefs, it becomes emotional very, very quickly. And so because of these complexities, I, I guess I felt promptings to go over to Palestine um, and to spend a couple of months in the Middle East. And I wanted to meet with members of, of Hamas and Fatah and Jihad and and talk to them and ask them why they did what they did and really see for myself exactly you know what the what the situation was. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose it would be difficult to be writing about a topic with without any kind of firsthand experience. Yeah, and it's it's a it's I guess a lot of Muslims are critical of the literature because you know, because they don't see it as as representative of their beliefs and their lifestyles. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of, I guess, and it's true, a lot of articles are written by non-Muslims about Muslim communities and a lot of, you know, they're... What do they know? That's, and that's right. And I would, you know, I would sort of suggest that often that probably is the case. So I, I, I guess I, I, I felt in my prayers that, you know, that that was a good thing to do. And so what I did was... You know, I, I I guess I nurtured it as you do these these feelings and these answers, and then within a short period of time, 
uh, I expressed an interest and I was offered an internship at um, a center in Hebron, which is on the West Bank. And um, and I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity. But of course, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the most contentious hotspots within the world where it's just people are con- continually killed over there. And- Actually, sorry, that's a good point. Maybe we should point out for those listening just why Hebron is, is such a contentious place to visit. So it's a Palestinian city. It is. Basically, it's entirely, other than a very small uh you know, Israeli settlement, it's entirely Muslim. In fact, it's the most conservative Islamic um, city on the, uh, you know, on the West Bank. Uh, and so, I mean, in a place like Hebron, if you saw a female without a hijab, then she simply wasn't from Hebron, um, which is very different, say, to Ramallah, which is another city, you know, um, on the West Bank. Mm. It's been described in Israeli media as a, you know, as a centre or a hive of of terrorism. Yeah, I read it with the, the hotbed. Yeah, of terrorism. yeah, hotbed, I think, is probably what it's described as in, in the media, in Israeli media anyway. I mean, it was an interesting place. I was only, uh, I guess, 600 meters from, you know, from the tomb of where Joseph and Israel are buried, you know, and, and all family members. And I used to walk down to, you know, the, it's a mosque now, but it's the tomb of the patriarchs. And, um, you know, I mean, it was a great place to be, but, you know, the street that I, I stayed in in Hebron within a few days of being there, you know, a man was killed by Israeli soldiers. And it was a it was a dangerous time. I went over there. It was when they, you know, the contention was peaking, really, the moving of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And, uh, mm. and while I was over there, you know, some 1,500 unarmed Palestinians were, were shot by Israeli soldiers. and um, there was rioting everywhere. So, I mean, it was, on one side, it was a, a dangerous time to be over there, but on the other side, it was, you know, it was a good time to be there in terms of my observations. I guess sort of getting back to, you know, the nature of faith and receiving answers to prayers, I had concerns about going over to uh, Hebron because there was so much uh, killing over there. And and I did sit down with my son before I left, my oldest son. I said, look, if, you know, if I should, I don't expect to die, but if I should be killed, then just know that everything will be all right. I had to challenge myself as really as, as uh, the importance of this and was I really feeling the promptings of the Spirit. Although I'd felt really, you know, a beautiful stirring of the Spirit that I should go to a place like uh, Hebron, uh, there was a lot of thoughts that worked to the contrary, and uh, I would ask, you know, I ask myself, well, what happens if something happens? I mean, if there's a place that's dangerous and, you know, what if I should make my wife a a widow and the kids should be fatherless? And it was because I was so, you know, pursuing my own vain ambitions, so to speak, for my own studies and what forth I was (laughs) challenged in the beginning, like, you know. A few letters at the end of your name. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Was, Was this really the will of of Heavenly Father. And so, I mean, I must have been bothered because I looked into uh, into insurance, kidnapping insurance, you know, while I was over there. So, you know, that I wouldn't be sort of be in a real fix, I guess. Um, and so I looked at these issues and uh, still I, in my prayers, I, I felt um, a peace and I felt a, a beautiful energy that it was the right thing to do. And, and uh, you know, I really searched for an answer and 
I sort of priested blessing and I um, I fasted and I was getting emails from from Hebron saying, are you coming to do this internship? Are you coming to do this internship? And I'd say, yes, yes, but I kept putting it off because of, I guess, fear. Mm. Justified. <laughs> <laughs> well, it got to a point where they sort of said, look, if you don't give us an answer by this Friday, then really it's over. And I remember sort of saying in my prayers, well, Heavenly Father, please forgive me for my lack of faith, but I really need something a little bit more than, you know, a warm feeling if I'm going to go over into a, a place that has so much killing. And so I sat down and I, after my, my fasting and what forth, and I sat down in the lounge room and I had a copy of the standard works there. Now, um, what I probably need to mention, which we did talk about before, was that, that you know, a place like Palestine, of course, that this is the same conflict between, you know, that David and Goliath that rages today, you know. In Arabic, the word for Palestinians is Philistine, you know, and and anyway, the the I guess you know really the point that I'm mentioning this is that uh, my grandfather was was actually a, a a Jew who was was killed during the Second World War, and uh, although I don't know anything about really about Judaism or or for that matter, my have a very limited knowledge on Israel. Uh, the fact that it was my mother's father meant that I can in, I'm entitled to apply for Israeli citizenship, and of course, you know, Jews aren't very popular in a place like Palestine. And so, even my my Muslim friends here, my Arab friends, would say, "Are you crazy?" You know, like the last thing you would ever ever do is tell them that uh, you know that you had this Jewish birthright, so to speak. And uh, my wife said, "Look, I know what you're like." Don't tell anybody. Don't tell any of the Palestinians that you have this this Jewish birthright. And so, anyway, I say that for a reason. Going back to when I was, the week was there, and I was really pleading for direction, Heavenly Father. I will go if you want me to go, but I need more than a warm feeling. And so, I sat down with the Standard Works, and I just laid it. I was kneeling at the time, and I just laid it on the floor, and the Standard Works fell open. I think I worked it out between the Standard Works as and I think there's like more than 40,000 scriptures, you know, which is lots of sentences, some of those scriptures. Yeah, we're not just talking the Book of Mormon here. There's a lot of content to be working with. A lot of content to be working with. And so I, I just let the, I just pleaded that this is the answer. They need an answer this week. Whatever the answer is today, I will go or I will not go. So I just placed the scriptures and they just fell open. And the very first verse that I put my finger on uh, was in Samuel, Second Samuel. and. Um, Anyway, the verse just really paraphrasing, it was very much along the lines of Hebron is the gathering place and this is the land of your flesh and blood. Wow. And so I felt that I'd received a really clear answer to my prayers. You know, a lot of the fear left that indeed, no matter what would happen, that, uh, you know, that I was doing what I knew that Heavenly Father wanted me to do. You can't get much clearer than that. <laughs> It was. It was very clear. And so we started making the arrangements. And of course, you know, I went over there and um, and I remember when I first arrived, it was interesting, when I first arrived in Jerusalem and I met with a, a commander of, of counterterrorism in Jerusalem from Israeli intelligence and he and I sat down and, and he asked me what I was doing and he just looked at me and he said, look, you're a really nice guy. and you know, 
the point is that you're dangerously unaware that you're about to be killed. You've got this plan to go in and do what it is that you're going to do, and and uh, it's really, really dangerous. And he really pleaded with me not to do what I was doing, especially when he found out that I had a Jewish birthright. And um, anyway, he was a nice guy, and it was a really incredible experience because he actually started writing a letter to explain my death to Giuliani. He was so certain that I was going to, you know, that I was going to, I guess, be killed. And and um, I mean, what was interesting was that, you know, I I went into this place in Hebron and it was like a stone building that, I mean, it was, I guess it was kind of, if you can imagine something out of the movies, the front of it had been sort of peppered. You could see the wounds of machine gun fire across the front of this building. And, um, and uh, anyway, I shared a room with a, um, with an American, um, young American who'd converted to Islam. He'd converted to a Salafist form of Islam. And, uh, and he was very anti-American, America, American policy was anti-Jerusalem. And, and he was probably, in all honesty, in many ways, um, you know, fertile ground for recruiting for something like ISIS. And so mm, like we, he, shared a bed, he shared a bed next to me and we would talk late into the night, into the morning uh, about lots of, lots of really interesting issues in actual fact. And, um, and it was interesting, like I'd, I'd phone my wife back every day and she said, you know, often when you were phoning home, I could hear the machine gun fire in the background, you know. Oh. And, and um, Had you just and, become used to it or something? Well, I, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's, you know, often they fire, you know, with rubber bullets and real bullets. Is it Israel that's firing most of the time? or? Uh, yeah, the Palestinians really, I guess, don't, don't, in this particular case, it was very much the, Israeli soldiers that were, you know, that were trying to control the rioting in the crowds and mm-hmm. before. And it was interesting because I was in a, uh, you know, when I was back in Jerusalem before I left and went across the border into Palestine, like I went into a phone shop, you know, there were a number of customers there and then I walked in there and I got a card for my mobile and, you know, just after I'd paid for it and he nicely, he'd put it in my phone and we we're having a great conversation and, you know, and then I happened to ask him, oh, just by the way, we'll, this card allowed me to get a reception in Hebron. But when I said that, the whole store stopped, hmm. both customers and staff, and it was dead quiet. It was almost like this ghostly scare stare. And there was this, I assume he was Israeli, but he was American. He said he was from New York, but hes you see them on TV with the locks and the bowler hat and the black suit sort of thing. He was kind hmm. of standing there, and, and there was this awkward silence, and he just sort of looked at me and said, are you opposed to the state of Israel? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, why else would you be going into Hebron? And so, you know, it was really interesting to be able to see that dynamic, which I saw. And of course, when I'd go over into Palestine, you know, I'd, I'd explored the whole issue of, of, you know, the relationship with the Israelis. And it was, I mean, if, look, if you gave a, if you gave a, pencil and paper to a Palestinian, you know, living in Palestine in a place like Hebron and said to him, said to them, draw me a picture of an Israeli, then uh, I I would be pretty confident that they would draw a picture of uh, a man with a gun. I, I would go into classrooms and I would teach in some of the classrooms, you know, in Hebron and, and I would say, who here hates Israelis? 
And of course, like a little bullet, every hand would go up. And then I would try and rephrase it again and say, who here hates, hate Israelis that would do anything for peace? And of course, every hand went up like a bullet. It didn't matter how you phrased it. It was just a dangerous energy and situation that was... Is there a lot of propaganda as well on both sides? Yeah, of course there is. I mean, you know, in a place like Hebron, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Palestinians believe that the only solution is to get rid of all Jews out of the Middle East. And they've been taught that. That's a very dangerous place to be. When I heard the children talk about this and say this, and I looked over to the manager of the center, and he knew what I was thinking. Later, I said to him, I said, you know what that means? If there's no negotiation, then there's going to be more death. And I used to say constantly, I say this, you know, the tomb of the patriarchs here, the mosque, this is the third most holy site to in Islam. And I would say that you've got, you know, this is the birthplace of both Ishmael and Isaac. You know, the Jews are your cousins. Where, where do you want them to go back to? You know, this is where it started, right here in this valley, right by Hebron. Where else would the people gather to protect themselves, you know, in a world where they've been persecuted? And I'd have these conversations um, with many of the Palestinians, and it wasn't easy, but they respected my honesty, you know. And, I mean, there were a lot of things I didn't like on both sides, um, you know. But, I mean, what was really interesting was you would try to discuss with Palestinians, you know, the dynamics, and it would become so contentious that it was almost pointless. Even it was, it was counterproductive even raising the issue. I guess their hatred towards many of the Israelis was so intense mm. that, especially in groups, you know, the energy changed and you couldn't get anywhere and it was just better not to talk about some of those issues. It's amazing that you were able to set those up, though, those meetings in the first place. Who did they think you were, just a researcher or? I was pretty well transparent about my experiences and what I'd done and, and I told them that I'd been a police officer and I'd worked in counterterrorism and that I was looking you know, for solutions. And it, it was very interesting because, you know, I'd walk around a place like Hebron. It was a very different dynamic. The people were beautiful, absolutely mm. beautiful. Uh, everybody was welcoming. And it's so misrepresented often in, the, in, you know, in the media because it's a place where, you know, Arabs are extremely hospitable. And it's a place where I would see the Palestinians leave their shops to go away and pray, you know, in terms of, Islam, like praying there five times a day. And people would come in and they would take stock and they would just come back and pay later. And so in many ways, it's really interesting that Palestine is depicted as this place that is, you know, so unruly. And, and there is, I guess, there are lots of problems in terms of, you know, killing and what forth. But, um, you know, in many ways, they had virtues that I really loved and admired. I mean, every every Palestinian house had this this room in the front, which was really designated simply just to, to, to really look after and be hospitable. And I, I went in there and they asked me what I were doing, what I was doing. And I said, look, I, you know, it's a very controversial place and I wanted to see for myself what's going on. And, uh, and I think they really respected that. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, I was meeting people and people were introducing me to other people and having all sorts of incredible experiences. Yeah, that is amazing. So you were speaking with both the Palestinians and the Israelis. Yep. How did the conversations differ? Like what was each side giving you or saying? You know, there's a huge history there that's been going back thousands of years. And so it was very, very interesting. I was fine as long as I kept the two separate. 
So I could walk into the Palestinian world and they seemed to look after me, respect me and love me. And then I would go into the Israeli world and they were very hospitable. And and so, I mean, look, they're very much cousins, but uh, the issues are, 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 are very complex. And I, and I have people ask me, are you pro-Palestinian or are you pro-Israeli? Um, and uh, my response is I'm pro-justice. You know, and whatever that may be, and I've seen atrocities on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, and the moment we start talking about justice and justice, as opposed to whether I'm all, and I think that's the only way I can be for both. You know, is is by by really sort of asserting myself to be about what is, you know, what is what is right. You know, what is what is just. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that's subjective, also. But I think that's where we need to start. Yeah, and the conflict now it's so ingrained in the culture they're they're both battling over the same place but but what you're describing is that they don't like the people now because of what they've been taught over years yeah i mean it is it's there's i don't think there's any other example like it you know in the world i mean you have a people that do share the same space and a lot of a lot of jews were expelled and scattered almost mm-hmm. 2000 years ago and for a lot of reasons, there were Jewish communities created all in different parts of Europe and, and uh, around the world and throughout the Roman Empire and what forth. And Israel was a definite place, although that's disputed, I guess, in Palestinian propaganda. Uh, but I mean, clearly it was a case. And, um, you know, I, I would talk about this with Palestinians and say that, you know, there were 100,000 Jews killed in Russia. There were millions of Jews killed in the Holocaust. They were persecuted in many places. and they of course, realised the only way that they could protect themselves is if they band together and they come home. They come home. Yeah, that was the really the only way. And they would say, "Well, this isn't their home. They have no place here. They don't speak like us. They don't look like us." And and many Israelis, of course, don't look Middle Eastern. And um, and I would say, "Well, look, you know, we're only we're only five minutes walk from where both your ancestors come from. I mean, where else are they going to come to?" You know, you look at a comparison, say, Māori, Māori in New Zealand, like they've only been there for a thousand years, but they're the indigenous people. And for generations, they can talk about their connection to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's only 1,000 years. The Jews were scattered 2,000 years ago. And so for, I don't know, 40 generations or something, this land has been in Palestinian hands. You know, 40, imagine that, 40 of your forefathers. And then all of a sudden, the Israelis push them off that land. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they're upset. Um, but what are the boundaries of ancient Israel? Yeah, and the names have changed. Or, you know, if you go uh, back absolutely. to the Old Testament, it's just continuously being renamed and reclaimed. So, and it, and it is. And I mean, just two simple observations about my time there was that that I I was personally disturbed by the tolerance and ease at which the Israelis stomached or tolerated the suffering of Palestinians. Would probably be my first criticism of you know, of, of a lot of Israelis. And then, of course, you know, I look at the Palestinians and, you know, very few of them have faith in their leaders, those that are corrupt. Their power and position is their business opportunity, so they don't want that dynamic to change. Of course. And, and so, yeah, and so, like, while I was over there, it was interesting, there was a car bomb that blew up to allegedly kill the the deputy prime minister, you know, and. Uh, a lot of people said that it was the Israelis because that's the automatic response of the Palestinians. But of course, the Palestinians that I spoke to, some of the intel officers and those that were more informed, like bankers and doctors that had bigger networks, 
um, felt that it was actually Palestinians that had done it to ensure that the leaders would stay in power and, and in the process ensure their business opportunity. Huh, wow. So it is very sad in some ways. But while you were there, you did have some positive experiences, didn't you? Like maybe- I, I had some beautiful experiences. Yeah. I, had, I had some incredible experiences while I was there. And I mean, I can share one of those experiences if you like. Yeah, um, So I guess personally, my own belief is, is that there has been too much killing, that there has been too many terrible things happen, that I think we've entered a territory where you know, the only way we're going to resolve issues. I don't think man has the capacity. I think we need inspiration and revelation to be able to to resolve something that, you know, that has been going on for so long with so many people. So, and I, I, I guess I want to share an experience that sort of epitomizes that where if we have the faith to, to follow those promptings, uh, then beautiful things can happen. But in many circumstances, you know, um, we need the courage to to be able to do so. But if we do so, then we open the doors for Heavenly Father, I guess, in essence, to be able to work his magic. After a month of being in Hebron, I had, you know, a lot of Palestinian friends and I had two friends that I would probably speak to regularly. Every day we would talk and I knew that we had a great relationship and I went out to a, uh, a cafe. And in this cafe, I was sitting there and I we were talking away and I felt the promptings uh, of the spirit to share with these two Palestinians that I had a Jewish birthright, you know, that I could actually apply for Israeli citizenship. And, and, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do that. There's no way in the world. I'm going to, I promised my wife I wouldn't do that. My Arab friends, Muslim friends have basically said, you know, just don't say anything about that. Keep that under your head. And I'm like, no, no, I won't. And then I felt these beautiful promptings again you know, to be able to do this. So I looked at both these guys and I, I told them, I believe that we had a genuine trust and concern for each other. And I told these guys, I said, look, this is my mother and her father. And I'm pointing my finger on the wall and saying, above that, this is my mother's father. And he was Jewish. And when I said that, it was a really interesting response. Both my friends wouldn't look at me any longer. And they wouldn't talk and they kind of closed the conversation down and it was a pretty uncomfortable moment. They didn't get irate or angry. They just left the conversation. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I, 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 I hoped that was the spirit that I'd felt and that I wasn't just sort of doing my own thing. And then I went back to the house and I thought maybe this is a really good time just to, to leave and go and so I prayed about it again is this a good time to just disappear and go back to Jerusalem and and I felt the beautiful reassurance that it was fine and so so I stayed and then the next day I still couldn't you know my friends didn't ring me and they'd rung me every day and they wouldn't take my phone calls and then the next day after that it was the same and the day three I'm thinking oh my goodness Heavenly Father should I be leaving here and just going now and you know uh these beautiful reassuring feelings to just keep doing what i was doing anyway so what happened was that on the fourth day they came back and on the fourth day when they came back they came back stronger than ever and they just needed a few days i think to process the fact that i had been transparent the fact that i was genuinely concerned that my 
affection was real, that I wanted to be part of the solution and not be part of the problem. And and if anybody had anything, everything to lose, it was probably me. You know, I was in their territory and I was really, you know, at their mercy, I suppose. And anyway, as a result of that, they opened more doors and I started meeting with lots of different Palestinians and it was an incredible experience. But the reason I share this is there's a beautiful flow on of this that really sort of just reminds me that from small and simple things, great things can happen. And it reminds me of that scripture in Isaiah that talks about my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways as the heavens are higher than the earth. Um, so are my ways higher than yours, the, the ways of man. And so if we just have the courage to follow what we believe is that higher way, uh, then um, amazing things can happen. So what happens is, I guess uh, a week or two later, I was going through a, uh, a border crossing and I was stopped by two Israeli soldiers. And um, anyway, they, they kind of remind me of our missionaries. They're about the same age, and you know, but they, they, they are standing with submachine guns and grenades. And um, and as I'm speaking with these guys, like they're really, they're really fascinated by the work I I do. They're asking me where you're from and what's your background. And I told them about the PhD and and about understanding the Muslim mindset and and uh, how to work with you know within Muslim communities and what forth. And they were so fascinated by that and the security aspects of you know of of some of these issues and so we were talking and of course I shared that you know my grandfather was Jewish and so after an hour of talking to these soldiers at a border crossing there was quite this good energy and and I felt that I had their trust and and we exchanged phone numbers and emails addresses and then it got to a point where where one of them asked me so where are you staying and I um I looked at him and I said oh I'm staying in Hebron and honestly it was like the phone shop again. It was like oh my goodness. the cafe in Hebron. There was like these two soldiers went deadly quiet. The energy changed and they just looked at each other. They wouldn't look at me, you know. Um, but I knew that I had this rapport going with them. And so one of these soldiers, his name was Bensi, and Bensi said to me, what are the Palestinians really like? And I said, look, there are, there are beautiful people that deserve respect and dignity. And he kind of laughed and said, look, I know that's what they want you to believe, but, you know, you're an investigator, you're a social scientist, no doubt you've been digging. What are these people really like? You've got to bear in mind that these, these Israeli soldiers are, are, are good young men. They're, they're good young men that have been raised with morals and what forth, but, but how, do you, how do you get good people to stand over over Palestinians and do some of the things I guess are that are done, and the only way you can do that is is to really condition these soldiers, condition Israelis. And if you believe that they're dogs, then you're justified to treat them like dogs. And then all of a sudden, your soldiers can actually, you know, sleep at night. But anyway, the the point being was was this is where these soldiers were and they were wanting to know how do you find them and i said look they've been so hospitable to me and anyway i could still see they were struggling to trust me to to believe whether or not that was the case because i was challenging this belief that they were dogs and had caused this mess and that they don't have you know uh they're not civil 
you know. And Everything that they've been taught, I assume. That's right, that it conditioned them. And so basically um, he's looking at me and then I just sort of mentioned to him, I said, Bensi, I, I told them I have a, a Jewish birthright. And when I said that, he looked at me and immediately his eyes started to water and he started to cry. He knew that what I was saying was was real and he just said, what have we done? He just looked at me and said, look, I don't have the answers for this, but can you can you take me to meet some of these Palestinians? Uh, I, even if I just expressed my hope and respect, even if that helps, you know, but I mean, the reality of something like that happening was was not feasible because uh, he'd have to do it in secret and an Israeli soldier meeting in secret in, with Palestinians would cause problems for him. And same for Palestinians, if then there are risks for them as well. Anyway, so it, that was a beautiful experience. And then, of course, after I met with those soldiers, I went back into Hebron and I would go to some of the different homes with some of the Palestinians. And I'd be sitting at a table and we'd all be eating and and I'd share with them the the reaction of this Israeli soldier that he cried and that he just wanted to show his love and respect. And and then I would look at the table and everybody at the table was crying. Wow. You know, everybody's sick of the killing. Everybody wants something better. And, and it's interesting because almost all of these people would say to me, we've truly forgotten God. And it was really powerful. And then, of course, I, you know, I'd go back into Jerusalem and I'd, I'd meet with a law enforcement or, or counterterrorism officer or something, and I would explain, and they'd say the same thing, and they, their eyes would water. And, um, you know, we've forgotten God. All it was was if really that Heavenly Father understood right from that time where I trusted, I, and I guess a word, another word for trust is faith. And so if I had faith that, you know, that these men would were good men and that they would do the right thing by me if I told them that I had this is this Jewish heritage. Then, you know, they honored that and then they looked after me even more and then that brought out a different response, of course, in the Israeli soldiers and, and all of a sudden the energy changed and a change in the energy is really, really powerful. I guess the whole point of this is 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 just believe that Heavenly Father knows our needs, knows us more than we know ourselves and, and our bigger environment. If we just exercise that faith and stand on that faith and, and especially when it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it must be incredible to look back in hindsight and see how every little piece fell into place that from the beginning when you were feeling doubtful as to whether you should go or not, and then seeing the fruits of your experiences, not just for your PhD, but for all the people that you touched along the way. Oh, and look, the fruits, the fruits are here. You know, like I've been invited to meet with the National Imams Council here in Australia. You know, and when I'm introduced, I'm the preferred researcher. And if these, <laughs> you know, national leaders have a question, then they seem to be coming to me. And I mean, Heavenly Father's just, you know, just sort of created this awesome experience. If we I just have that readiness, preparedness to just pursue Heavenly Father's thoughts then and think about things a little bit differently and follow the Spirit, you know, then then it becomes very powerful. And not surprisingly, it always adds to our happiness and the happiness of others. Mm. There's a special joy for those that follow the plan. 
Is there anything you'd have members here in Australia, New Zealand, or, you know, just the general population, what would you have them know about the people that you met and their experiences, their beliefs? Look, I think the, I think the main, the main response on my part would be is that, you know, people respond to honesty, to integrity, to courage, you know, and I'm a great believer that it's not, it's not intellect that, that, that changes hearts. It's, it's courage, you know, as a young investigator in the police years ago, when I first become state Islamic coordinator and I looked at, you know, Muslim communities and I got online and it's kind of like getting online. If you punch Mormonism into online and all of a sudden <laughs> you come up with anti-Mormon literature, you know, it's a bombards you. It's exactly the same here, but my experience was a very different experience. Yes, there are obscure aspects of their faith that, you know, if you bring up, it becomes a little bit sensitive, but there isn't every faith, even in our own faith. So what I find is that, you know, if you follow divine principles, then I guess you get some divine rewards. It's all about sort of doing things Heavenly Father's way. And as Latter-day Saints, if we do our part to draw the Holy Ghost, then people don't even know why they're feeling it. And it's so true. People might not remember what you said, but they remember how they felt around you. And if we have the Holy Ghost and people don't even know why they're gravitating towards you, I would meet Muslims who would say to me, I can't believe I told you and I shared with you what I just shared with you. That really surprises me. But it's because, you know, if you're talking about energy, we have this Holy Ghost, which is really central to our creation and we can do wonderful things, but we need to be out there doing things. Mm. And the Holy Ghost is there to touch hearts, whether you are a member of the church or not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should probably wrap up. But yeah, sounds I, good, Maddie. <laughs> I would just like to thank you again for sharing your experiences. You know, you've talked about the, the spirit and how it touches hearts when you have told people about your time over there. I've certainly felt it in the last hour. It's been really precious to to hear what you've learned. I just want to shoot to our final question. Um, yep. Now, this relates to the title of the podcast, which is Choosing Faith. Yep. And your whole experience has been uh, a demonstration of how you've chosen faith time and time again. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Jason, what does Choosing Faith look like to you? Choosing faith to me, um, I guess, is to exist in a world that can chew us up and spit us out that can hurt us and that and you ask yourself well where do i stand and what do i do and you know just reminding myself that there's meaning to this and that there's a bigger plan and just removing distractions and just listening with my spirit to feel the stirrings and then just having the faith to follow especially when i don't understand Jason shared so many stories with me about his time in Hebron, and I wish I could include them all here. But what I hope came across was his utter humility and commitment to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. His trust that he would not be led astray if he chose to be vulnerable with his new friends in Hebron reveals a conviction I really aspire towards. If you know any stories like Jason's that you would like to hear on this podcast, you can get in touch with me on Facebook or Instagram using the handle Choosing Faith Podcast. See you next time.